Roll Massif's collection of eight road, gravel, and mountain bike sportives in Colorado take riders on a journey through the most stunning landscapes in the U.S. Each sportif offers a range of distances and challenges to suit all abilities. Iconic courses wind through the alpine terrain at the Copper Triangle Sportif and desert landscapes through the Colorado National Monument during the Tour of the Moon. Each event delivers an incredible day out on the bike with world-class support and a post-ride festival. And to help get kids out on their bikes, anyone under 18 rides for free at the road and gravel events. You can check them out at rollmassif.com. That is R-O-L-L-M-A-S-S-I-F.com. And listeners of the Fizzo podcast get 15% off any Sportive using the code Fizzo15. That's P-Y-S-O-15 at checkout, which expires May 1st. What does it take to make the sport of professional cycling a truly modern global sport? Former Giro d'Italia boss Michele Acquaroni has some revolutionary ideas that could see the sport of cycling not only survive the current pandemic, but thrive in the post-crisis sporting environment. This week on Put Your Socks On. G'day and welcome to another episode of Put Your Socks On, the podcast that's been social distancing since April 2019. Today we have a really important episode, so stay tuned for that. My name is Angus Morton and as always, I am joined by Bobby Julik. How are you, mate? I'm doing quite well, actually, Gus. Uh, We've been having some amazing weather here in Greenville, South Carolina, which is helping out a lot, as I hear that you guys are having a lot of snow up there, so (laughs) thank goodness I don't have to deal with that sort of stuff. We broke out the tennis rackets for the first time in a while. Had a great time social distancing on the court with my family. It was great, but I'd have to say the most interesting social distancing entertainment I've had recently is playing poker, online poker with the Zoom for video and everything. That that has been a kick because, I mean, you don't realize after being inside for a month just how much of that social aspect yeah. that, you, you, that you miss, you know, like just kind of hanging out with the same people kind of becomes the norm and then you have all your buddies there. Uh, it was just fantastic so we were actually i had an idea of maybe we should um record it and put it on youtube but i realized pretty quickly that that was a bad idea as talk around the poker table is rarely pg-13 to say the least (laughs) but yeah and yeah i think that people all over the world are adapting to riding inside and i would go maybe as far to say that they're embracing it i know that many don't have an option at the moment but do feel after this is all over, many people will continue to supplement their outdoor riding with the specificity that these indoor platforms are providing at the moment. Look, Bobby, I got to be honest. I don't know if I can ever embrace indoor cycling. Uh, I'm still at the barely tolerating it stage. However, I will say uh, last Thursday, um, I launched along with my company thereabouts and Team 2020. Uh, their new team kit campaign, um, which we developed and were obviously denied the opportunity to launch in real life. And so Zwift stepped up to the plate and allowed us to launch that kit virtually to, I think, 600 riders on their weekly training ride. 
which was really cool to see. And and to to your point about um, you know riding indoors becoming a bigger part of people's programs than it was uh, prior to the the current lockdown situation. I would have to uh, agree with you on that one. The community presence and and just the conversation that was going on with people from from literally like every you know corner of the world was really really it was nice it was really cool so look you know i might not quite be a convert yet and i i do dip my toe in occasionally but hopefully i will uh you know get more involved speaking of more involved bob this week we actually had some racing yeah, believe it or not, people are adapting to the current situation and, and making it a little bit more fun. Some teams are really stepping up to the plate and engaging their fan base. The amount of people that I've seen on Zwift is just amazing. Uh, so many people on all day long, having fun, doing those rides, like you said. And the races, I mean, the real deal. If anybody's ever tried racing on these platforms, you'll see, you, you'll you'll learn pretty quickly it's that, it, that it's that, that it's rude. It's absolutely <laughs> rude. But uh, Team Ineos had a really cool kind of group ride, and then they finished with their whole team racing up the Alp de Zwift, which I actually tried yesterday with, with George Hincapie. And let me tell you, it's, it's, it's legit. I mean, Rowan, he just murdered everybody in that race. I mean, really, they didn't stand a chance because when you think about something in some particular rider's wheelhouse going hard for 34 minutes i think he did yeah is 16. you know in a confined space basically racing against yourself i mean ron dennis has got to be one of the best people in the world to do that so yeah he he won quite easily uh, <laughs> to tell you the truth um he definitely put that time for Alp de Zwift pretty much out of the ballpark for 99.5% of the rest of the human population. But you know what would have been cool? Because he had plenty of time to to celebrate this, and they were all on Zoom, so they all knew what was going on. But it would have been so cool to see him celebrate his victory with some sort of like preempted champagne podium jersey flower presentation i think that would have just that would have been the icing on the cake for me because you know it, it is it's got to be fun right and we all have to laugh and laughter that would have made exactly. that would have that would have made my day so congratulations to him for that uh there was another race the trofeo bologna that was a women's race which was won by ashley mulman pazio she did actually post up her hands at the end and i was i watched i didn't watch it live i went back and watched it um in, in the recording. And as soon as she did that, I was just, I, I was so stoked. I thought that was, that was awesome. So congratulations to her. Uh, just yesterday, Team Jumbo Visma did a race similar to what Ineos did, and they did it on a different course on Zwift. And American Sepkus won. Didn't see if he did a proper celebration, but I'm hoping that he did. And Bobby, there's been, uh, you're right, the, the great racing, but not only that, there's been a lot of athlete activism going on, right? And we've seen a lot of athletes using their profiles and this t- in this time at home to raise money for the NHS, you know, No Kids Hungry, organizations that are supporting people who have been put out in this current pandemic. None more, well, perhaps none more, wild than Geraint Thomas's 36-hour epic on Zwift. Like, that bends the mind 
for me in ways that few other human feats do. Um, he raised over 350,000 pounds though, which is unbelievable. All these people, all these riders are stepping up to the plate and trying to stay sane and, and raise some money at the same time. And Garrett kind of focused this around, you know, with our healthcare workers. These people mm. are working on the front lines, 12-hour shifts. And he got a little taste of that. Three days back-to-back -back doing 12-hour shifts on Zwift just gave him a little taste of what mm. these heroes are doing out in the real world. So, man, that was amazing. And for him to raise that much money is is phenomenal. But we had other people. We had Emma Grant. She did an Everstein ride up Mount Lemon for the No Kids Hungry organization. And I'd have to say she picked the hardest climb that I could think of to do the Everstein event. And to those of you that don't know what Everstein is, you you repeat a climb and you try to get to the same altitude meters of Mount Everest, which is 8,460 meters or something. I'm not quite yeah. positive. So that took her, what, four and a half times going up Mount Lemon. And the key to the Everstein thing is you want the, the climb to be somewhat steep, but then you want to be able to recover on the descent, especially when you're getting later into the ride. And to those of you who have not done uh, Mount Lemon, you have to pedal pretty much all the way on the descent. It's very hard to just stay in a super tuck and get down, you know, quite quickly because normally there's a headwind. So congratulations to Emma for doing that. Uh, other people that have, are doing some things, Amber Nevin uh, is on the RGT platform, is going to do a couple indoor race series races, also raising money for No Kids Hungry. And Rebecca Roche, Rebecca Private Idaho Gravel Everest Challenge for the Be Good Foundation. This, these are just a few of what's, what these riders are doing to stay active, to stay sane, and to do good in their communities. So pretty awesome there. And then I read today that even basketball legend Bill Walton is going to do some things for uh, Bike for Humanity. A lot of people are riding inside and on these platforms that perhaps they are not totally experienced in. So I reached out to Tim Kusick, the Training Peaks WKO product leader and head coach of Velocious Endurance Coaching, just to get a little bit of unbiased tips, because when I had this idea, Gus, you were like, well, I could just interview you about this, right? Yeah, exactly. But yeah, you, you could. And I share many, many, many of the same ideas around indoor riding as Tim does, but I thought it would be a little bit better coming from, from someone like himself. So... I asked him, what are the tips that you give to riders when racing or riding indoors? And one of his first things was invest in a quality trainer that has a free wheel for simulated inertia. Maybe that's part of your problem, Gus, is yeah. that your memory is that fan tra trainer where you would just burn your back wheel off and stare at your garage door. But um, it, it's gotten a lot better, put it that way. You know, for extended training and racing indoors... If you want to keep your data stream clean, you should actually pair your power meter that's on your bike that you use all the time as the uh, controllable power option in, on these platforms. Because a lot of people do just use the, de uh, the, the default setting for whatever, if it's the kicker, if it's the, the tax, uh, which has a power meter built in, but may not be the same. So... Also keep in mind that indoor riding 
is static. So it's very, it's much more difficult to create the same watts, especially in those explosive sprints than outside, because outside you're, you're dynamic, you're moving from side mm -hmm. to side, which is actually creating higher watts, not necessarily watts that are propelling you forward, but you know, it's very normal that a person could do 1200 watts outside in a sprint and then inside only do a hundred and think that something's wrong. So just, just keep that in mind a little bit. It's also important to establish your indoor training zones compared to your outdoor training zones due to this fact. But I think it really only affects those shorter durations, those sprints and whatnot, because that's when you're standing up, you know, jockeying back and forth on your bike. But if you're doing an FTP test or, you know, long sustained climb like Alp to Zwift, I think those differences would be much, much lower. But Getting over that monotone effect of indoor training is, is pretty important. You know, you have the erg mode, which people know now is what actually allows your trainer to hold a specific wattage where on in real terrain, you, you have that variance in, in watts. So mm. when you're doing the specificity on the trainer, it actually can be a little bit more difficult than doing it outside because you don't have those little micro breaks, but, um, trainertainment. This is very, very important to, to coaches and athletes that are just selecting these workouts on, on these platforms is you need to make it entertaining, right? That definitely does sound a little bit non-pro, but like you got to find a way to stay on the trainer a little bit longer. And if you can change the workout design and the format variation, that's key to, to staying on the bike a little bit longer. And Tim's real big tips here is cool, cool your environment as much as you can. Get some airflow going through there, open up a window, get some fans because thermal regulation can definitely be, be an issue. And not only the performance on the, the bike, but just the overall enjoyment. So make sure that uh, you're in a nice, cool, air-conditioned, if possible, room. And hydration, you know, make sure to increase your consumption and electrolyte use because if you get off the turbo trainer nowadays or the the smart trainer i'll say you'll see your shorts are just white it looks like you're a salt lick because you're just sweating so much more than than outside in in some of these conditions and and tim definitely said because you're in the the static mode locked into the trainer that maybe a little bit of post-ride stretching would be would be better people are spending more time so you know, calibrate those trainers, put in your appropriate weight, make sure that you're cool, make sure that you're hydrated, make sure that you're fueling correctly. And that's the way to, to stay on a little bit longer. It would be interesting to hear what a guy like Garrett actually ate during those three 12 hour rides. I bet you it was an enormous amount of food and enormous amount of liquid going into his body during that time. Bobby, that brings us to the main part of the show this week. And that is our interview with Michele Acquaroni. In late 2013, in a shocking announcement, news came from RCS that its then chief, Michele Acquaroni, had been accused of embezzling a staggering amount of funds from the company and was being removed from his role pending an investigation into the matter. More than eight years later, a accountant at the company, Laura Bertignotti, I hope I got that right, was found to be responsible and Acarone was acquitted of all charges. In what many would say is justice delayed, justice denied, Acarone took up work with a tech firm, leaving behind the cycling world. 
Beyond the staggering personal cost of the investigation for Michele was the opportunity cost lost to the sport of cycling. Michele was a rising star within the RCS organization and on the verge of making one of the most effective, at least on paper, revisions to the sport of cycling in decades, setting up a real challenge to the ASO UCI status quo and taking the sport right to the forefront of the 21st century. Yeah, the reason we want to bring this up is that Michele's vision for the sport was truly revolutionary. And in the years since his removal from office, the mission he was attempting has fallen largely by the wayside with the sport stagnating over the subsequent, what, nine years now. Exactly. And and we thought with the current situation in our sport giving us pause for reflection and the opportunity to give real serious thought to what we want it to look like once racing resumes, we thought let's sit down with Michele and get his feelings on where the sport is at now and where it needs to go if it is to truly become a 21st century global sport. Michele, welcome to Put Your Socks On. Thank you so much for making the time today to uh, jump on the, uh, on the Zoom room and, and do this interview. Firstly, how are you and your family uh, and loved ones holding up over there? Hi, hi guys. I'm very happy to be here. We are fine. Fortunately, we got uh, through the virus, both uh, of us, my family, my wife and I, but now we are fine. So we are good and uh, our kids are okay. We are still at home, of course, but uh, everything is fine. Great to hear. Wishing everybody really well. Let's jump into it. You were at one time right at the heart of pro cycling and you had a lot of ideas about how to make the sport better in your eyes. We realize you've been away from the sport for a while now, but we know you continue to follow it closely and you do, um, I guess you now are in the position where you can speak in a very open and frank manner about what the sport really needs to do to fix itself. First question is like with, you know, an aging kind of fan base, how do we get more people to watch this sport, to see this sport? Wow, I think that's a big question. Maybe it's the question because if you have people following the sport, then you have everything you need because that's the only more the only important thing that everybody in in every sport is is looking for people and how what we can do. Definitely, there is no just one idea, but many things that have to be combined together, in my opinion. And definitely, you need a long season, a very good narrative project. At the same time, you need uh, a lot uh, of different platforms to follow your favorite sport. Let's, let's talk a little bit about the narrative that you just mentioned. Obviously, we have a beautiful sport but we often seem to gloss over the real stories in there. What, what can we do to improve that narrative to the overall public, thus, in creating, thus creating more of a, a popular, well-informed, well-educated fan base? You know, it's not easy to give you an answer, but something we can, you know, we can share to, I want to share it with you and with people listening to us, that right now, we have just two big events along the season. One is the Tour de France in July, and the other one is uh, the World Championships in uh, in September. And uh, these are the only two events 
where I saw a lot of people, media, a, a, a very huge interest. And maybe it's not a worldwide interest, but it, it's very large interest. And uh, the question is how we can have uh, a Tour de France every month since the beginning of the season until the end of the season. And if the season is starting in February, March and ending in November, we have a lot of holes in the in the season right now and uh, definitely we need to have something bigger that can engage more people around the world so we need a beginning of the season and an end of the season and not just the two big events in my opinion what would your season long narrative look like and how would it build towards um, the championship event you know, and definitely to have a narrative, you need to combine all the events in a, in a long season. In this way, some smaller events that maybe are not so small, like the Giro d'Italia that I know so well, need mm-hmm. to be linked to the other. So all the teams and the single riders must be there if they want to achieve a final target. Right now, you have it, but you have it just on the paper. Some, just some a few fans know about a ranking, know about a standing. You, now you have just two events. And I think that the UCI, the Federation, need to do more to have a very narrative along the season where you have a ranking, a real stable ranking, and a, something that value pride and money for teams and riders. But didn't we try this back in 2005 with the inception of the Pro Tour? What, what was your opinion about the Pro Tour and maybe what were some of the mistakes that were made? Because it seemed to just fall away after that initial season, didn't it? I think that, uh, you know, it's not a matter of mistakes. It's just a matter of, and maybe it's not so nice to say, but it's a matter of money. At the end, if you have a big target, the big target is just the Tour de France, you will focus on, uh, on that. How many big riders just were focusing on one race in, uh, in the last years? And that's not so good. And so even the Pro Tour was not so attractive. Maybe they, I think it was the right way, but uh, they needed to do something more to do it attractive for riders. So then, and, and that, that's, that leads me to my next question. Speaking about money, let's talk about building in some better financial stability in the sport as a whole. I feel like that's something that needs to be addressed probably first and foremost before we can move on to building out a continuous narrative championship style season that sees all of our heroes racing against each other for the entire year. That's something that you were attempting to start taking steps towards during your time at RCS. How can we strengthen sponsor relationships and deliver them more value? You know, when we talk about stability, we need to understand that uh, in, in every sport and in cycling as well, you have uh, the big money coming from TV rights. And uh, right now, TV rights are in the hands of uh, Azo, the organizer of the Tour de France, and uh, the UCI, the organizer of the uh, World Championship. So all uh, 
the, the big money coming from events are going to these two players. And uh, all the other just having some the, the rest you know, of, uh, of, the, of the cake. I believe that uh, you need to have a more balanced income between uh, organizers, all of them, not just the two big players and uh, the teams, of course, because uh, now the teams are getting money just from their sponsors, and I think it's not right. And back when you were in charge of the Tour of Italy, the Giro, Italia, you actually had an idea being the organizer of sharing the money from the TV rights with the teams, correct? Of course. And I think that it's the only way to share money with teams. And uh, yeah, in big sports, the organizers give uh, to teams something like 70-80% of the TV rights. And uh, in, I believe that in cycling, it should be the same. What about digital rights? What opportunities lie in that realm for teams? I know like the Tour of California, for example, has like an app. Is there a way to create revenue streams in that world, like accompanying esports events, like, yeah, like apps, online um, engagement behind the scenes? I'm not sure. Is that, is that something that you've, that you've thought about? It depends, okay. But uh, mm-hmm. big money are coming from uh, now from TV rights. And when I say TV, maybe I should say media rights right now, because of course, if a big broadcaster is asking for the rights, they want to to show the race in every kind of device. So it has to be digital and TV and radio and whatever. So mm-hmm. talking about media rights, I think that if I am the geo organizer and I just try to sell my rights I'm quite strong. If I'm a smaller organizer, I'm definitely weaker. But if we are together, we get uh, we are stronger because because we have more events. And if our events have a good cast, it can be more attractive. So I just believe that uh, you need to sell the big package, not small packages, but just one big package to attract big. Uh, uh, big players like uh, the, the old uh, traditional broadcasters or the new one like uh, Amazon or, or Facebook, you know. But uh, I just cannot, I cannot attract a, a big player like that if I don't sell the whole season. So yeah. maybe in the future, one answer is that just one big player will own all uh, the races. That could be a good answer. So you have one power that is the organizer, another power that are the teams, and they and they try to find a good balance. Right now, it's everything is too fragmented, and that's a real problem. That's why uh, nobody can reach a good audience and is not able to attract and engage people because if you don't have audience, it's very complicated to to grow. You talked about the sport of cycling being a little bit too fragmented now. And in order to sell a TV right, digital right package, how can we actually make our sport more attractive to those sponsors? I'm looking at other sports like American football, soccer, or European football over over in Europe. These are franchises that 
have a top division, a second division, a third division, and they're all trying to get better and move up to get a big shot at the the Champions League or the 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 playoffs, right? So what what could we do to make our season more attractive to these bigger sponsors? Is it implementing more of a franchise situation, building to a crescendo? How could we actually make that a little bit more, I guess, interesting to these people that actually have the money and increase that TV rights without being so fragmented? What do you think, for example, about uh, tennis? I follow tennis and uh, it's a, a very global sport with, um, you know, Grand Tour, Grand Slam mm -hmm. in, uh, in every continent. They have it in Australia. They have it uh, in two in Europe and one in America. It's, it's very global. The season is starting in Australia with a big, very, very big event. And uh, the value of the Australian Open is the same of Wimbledon. Of course, Wimbledon is more historical. It's very fascinating. But uh, at the end, the, the money and the points are the same. And that's very good because it attracts good players. And then you have a good narrative and you have... Uh, a season that starts on the hard surface, then it goes to red clay, then it goes to grass, and then hard surface again. And I think that in cycling, it's not so different, but you have a very good ranking, and the players are playing every single tournament to get points and be the number one. And if you are the number one, you can participate to the final to the final tournament that the Masters where the eight players are playing. And that's a very good narrative. And they are still working to improve it. And now they have something for the young, the next generation. And they are trying to, you know, to create more narrative. In cycling, they, you know, the UCI is not working in this direction. It's just working to, you know, to keep... Uh, uh, everything as it is, the status quo. And that's what I don't like. They don't try to do something new. And probably with the Pro Tour, they try to do something in the right direction, but they, you know, they came back. So I believe that if you have a good narrative like that, even big media players can be very attracted to, you know, to, to engage fans along, uh, along the old season. And of course, you will always have the Tour de France as the best, the more important race. But I believe that even the Tour de France will be bigger if you have a very long season along the year. I, I, I totally agree with you there, but I do feel that in order to create that narrative, you just mentioned tennis, so I'll use that as an example, that there's spacing between the events so all the big players can play the same events. In cycling, we have so many races and so many objectives that they, it just seems to blur. And in American football, for example, you have the starting lineup and you wouldn't expect to see a game. You wouldn't want to pay to go to a game and then see the second or third string players play the game. So if we could space out our season where the starting lineup, all the best riders are at the same races, yet they have time in between to recover because obviously three week long stage races, it takes, you know, 10 days to three weeks to recover from that. 
But creating that ability, spacing out the calendar a little bit more so that the Division I teams, you're always looking at the best riders racing the best races. Is that at all possible in the sport, the way that it's set up now? I think that uh, it could be possible with some changes. And uh, you need to have some races going to the second division, maybe. Uh, but uh, if you have a first division, you need to have the first lineup for the top teams to engage engage the fans. I believe, and that's my old idea, that three weeks is too much for the Grand Tour. I think that the two weeks, the three weekends uh, should be enough to have a very great race, to give more rest to riders and give uh, the top riders the opportunity to ride more races. But anytime I say something like that, I have the you know the people from the old cycling saying that uh, it's crazy because uh, you lose the third week that it's the most important where the real champions are going out and uh, so I understand this kind of history the vintage uh, cycling uh, heroes coming out but uh, I believe that now is too much and uh, if you are a champion, you can show it in two weeks and three weekends and it's enough. And so this is the big, the, in my opinion, you need to change that. And even for TV rights, media rights, uh, it's two weeks and three weeks, it's okay. Even the Olympics are in two weeks. So you can have uh, a Tour de France or a Giro d'Italia in two weeks. Let's talk about, to, to your point, right, Let's let these smaller events that don't have much power, you were pretty outspoken about creating a third power in cycling outside of, you know, to challenge the might of the ASO and the UCI. Bringing some power back to the teams and the athletes and these smaller events, do you see that as like part of the key um, to shifting the season uh, to being a more linear version of, of what it is uh, where we see our, our heroes racing each time or... How do you is, do you see there as an opportunity um, and that being integral in this part of in in this change in cycling? So I believe that the three is the perfect number. So uh, you need it to have a good balance, and uh, because uh, you know the power in just in one hand it's, it's too much, two hands it's not enough. I, I think you need three, and the the best it will be just that one power is the organizer, as I said before. The second one is the teams and the third one is the association of riders because these are the three more important components. But right now you have two powers that are too strong. And so you need the third one uh, putting together all the others at this moment because you have too many small organizers and you have too many teams that uh, they have no voice. And of course, even the riders that are the last one (laughs) in the chain and you need uh, to have a third power because otherwise UCI and uh, and uh, above all ASO is doing whatever they want and that's the challenge that's the tricky part right is getting all these different fractions to finally put aside their differences and and sit down and actually map out a plan that works for everybody and not just a few in in that scenario do you feel that it's possible because we talk about history and the the legacy of the sport, et cetera, et cetera. Would something like that actually allow us to move forward 
or would it be just a struggle and a squabble for power between whatever those three powers would would be? Good question. Mm. I don't know. I just know that if you don't do like that, you stay as you are. So I think that it's worth to try, and uh, and then let's see what if something is changing. And uh, what I always said to my friend uh, Steve Maxwell in our long chat is that uh, this power should come from us in my opinion because uh, uh, if you want to move uh, the cycling forward the pro cycling forward you need a new voice and uh, it cannot come from europe or from the old continent and from from france of course you need a new voice coming from uh, your country guys and what does that voice look like? Ah, it it could be a, a very strong person uh, uh, running the running the teams, and so. But mm-hmm. uh, they need to be bold because uh, all the time the teams uh, were trying to do something different. Uh, even when we try to do something different, uh, RCS and the teams, uh, everybody was too scared of the Azo and Tour de France reaction, and they didn't at the end, just because they don't, didn't want to lose the grip with the Tour de France. So they needed to do something more because uh, uh, you should understand that uh, if uh, you have all the organizers and if you have uh, uh, all the riders and the teams in one side, you have a good power and you can try to do something different. And uh, so I believe that uh, the, this voice should come from the teams and uh, it should be a very good leader of the teams. And and I saw also the the Velon project that was going on, and I said maybe that's the right answer, but at the end it was not enough. And they were focusing on small things and not on the big one that are the big media rights of uh, Tour de France and World Championships. And I know that in the past you have been a big advocate of having women's races run concurrently with men's events. I grew up, my first exposure to cycling was the Coors Classic. And that was a perfect example of a race that ran at the same time, the women's at the same time as the men's, pretty much the same courses in the same format. And it was fantastic. I remember due to that, when when I was 13 years old, 14 years old, getting into the sport, I had pictures of women up on my wall as well as men. But recently, with the announcement of a proposed race schedule and start date for the Tour de France, one thing that is absolutely just hasn't been hasn't been uh, looked at at all is women's racing. And we've we've read recently the Cycling Alliance have just wrote a very scathing letter to the UCI say, saying that they're being ignored. Where can, in your opinion, can these races combine? and run a congruent event with men's races at the highest level and sharing that TV production, sharing the, the buzz around the race, instead of always trying to do these separate events where obviously the media attention isn't the same. Yeah. You, you have the answer, you know, it's so easy to do combined events that it's crazy that, uh, uh, all the, 
pro-cycling movement is not doing that, and not the organizers, and not the teams, and uh, it should be it, it, it should be a must. If you want to have a first-level race, you need to organize also a women race at the same time. And you have the TV production, you have the operational already in place. Everything is there. You have, of course, the buzz. You just need to invite the top girl teams and let them ride. It seems pretty simple, uh, Michele. But it is. It is. It really is. Before I was fired at RCS, we were working on this kind of project on the one-day races. And I didn't see just one reason to not do that. And it was um, the, the summer of 2013. And we said, okay, let's just start with uh, uh, Le Strade Bianche and let's start uh, with... Uh, the Sanremo and uh, Lombardia, uh, but uh, why, if it, it works, we cannot do it at the Tirreno Adriatico and then to the Giro d'Italia? Of course, we need to speak uh, with uh, UCI because you have a calendar, you, have, you need to organize that. It, it cannot be just uh, um, one promoter to do everything. But for the organizer, it's easy. <laughs> It's very easy. You have uh, the street closed. You know, you have the streets closed. And uh, you have the helicopters and the airplanes uh, on the, in the sky. Everything is in place. You just need uh, to invest a few money extra to have a great show with uh, two races at the same time. So what do you think is stopping that from happening, if you say, from the organizational perspective it's quite easy is this something that's landing with the uci and they're trying to do something different with this with the sport or i think it's just a matter of short vision because of course in the first years you organizer have to spend some money extra because the tv show is always the same because you cannot ask for extra money and the sponsors are always the same. You cannot have different sponsors. So in a very short time, you have to invest, but then you have a bigger audience, much more interest. You have two races and for, and you have for sure some, you have for sure some extra revenues and not just the cost of inviting teams, the price money and all the extra costs that uh, everybody's seeing. And I think that it's just a problem of uh, short vision. Okay, so how could cycling use the COVID situation to reinvent itself, to force itself to make these changes that we're talking about with the maybe more focused race calendar, the introduction of women's races along with the men? What would you do today if you were suddenly head of the UCI or the benevolent dictator of cycling, what what concrete steps could be taken here? Okay, the first that I have in my mind is about uh, esports, of course, because um, esports are uh, not the future but the present of uh, the sports, and you cannot ignore it. All the kids are playing video games and uh, they are very attractive. And so the e-sports in general are getting bigger. 
And incisingly, have something magical because it combines the, the console, the, the the video game, with a, a real a, a real physical activity, and it's great. If I have to choose my kids to play Fortnite all night long or to you know to ride a race, a virtual race, I will I will. Uh, invest uh, all my time to convince them to ride a, a real uh, a virtual race. So I think it's healthy, it's it's great, and it's a great opportunity for, for cycling to attract a, a very new, larger audience. And uh, the second point is that you have the opportunity to make some experiment. I don't know if it's good in English to say like that, maybe it's just an Italian translation, but... Uh, Try to do something new, okay? Yeah. And uh, you have the opportunity to say, okay, we have just half season. What we can do? Try to do something different. And what I said, okay, let's try to have three grand tours uh, two weeks. Let's see how it is. If it's so real that in the third week you see the champion or and the people don't uh, are not so happy in two weeks. Of course, it's complicated because... Uh, uh, the TGO d'Italia, the Tour de France, already presenting the, the route, uh, and they need the, to make some changes. In emergency, they can do it, you know, to make, to make it shorter. Let's see if it works. Or just try to have a couple of combined events, men and women. Let's see if it works. And uh, in, uh, in hard times, we need uh, different ideas. And you have the opportunity to do that. And so if uh, I was running the UCI right now, I for sure was, uh, I, I have to, uh, to force all the players, organizers, teams, and riders to try to do something different, to have a new opportunity next year. Off the top of your head, can you give us like what your program would look like for the 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 second half of this year if we are you know granted access to uh to the outdoors again what would your program look like uh, definitely we need to to keep uh, the biggest event with uh, you know more uh, uh, more people involved in in that so definitely you need to save uh, the tour de france <laughs> and uh, you need to mm-hmm. save some uh, some classics this is the starting point because uh, uh, you need to start from there and then try to adapt it. But uh, I don't want to say things that I don't know. And uh, right now, I don't know. Can I say in English, uh, an opportune? Because I don't want to say really things that I don't know. And uh, to, do, to have an answer, you need to study uh, sharply what you can do. But uh, so like that, if, if you just say totally. what you what, what you want to do? I think that you have yeah. to save the big events where the money is, you know, to try to save all the system right now. But trying to do something different. Definitely trying to do something different. So a shorter to the France, a short, maybe a shorter Giro d'Italia, and uh, some one-day combined events. Why not? Let's try to do that uh, and try to see if something, uh, something good happens. And speaking of doing something different, you mentioned um, in in an interview uh, a while back uh, about the movement that Greta Thunberg has um, created and the current global situation, right, with with climate change. The IEEC has spoken um, very openly about the role of the bike 
in part of the solution for, you know, kind of stemming this condition with climate change. And you've spoken about that. How do you see the role of professional cycling um, and that world playing its part in the discussion? I feel like right now it's not really talking about that issue and yet it leads the potential for a, a big part of the solution to this problem. What are your thoughts on that and, and how do you see the potential um, for the professional cycling world to do something about that? Okay. Uh, uh, I don't know if the, the formula is a mathematical formula and it, it can work, but for sure, people must change their habits to save the planet. That's for sure. And uh, uh, maybe it's late, maybe it's not late. I, I, I don't know, of course, but definitely we need to change. And changing means to have uh, a, a different, uh, different habits in, uh, in, in our daily life. And one of the things that we have to move is moving from cars and uh, to bicycle in the big cities. It, and I'm sure about that. And, uh, and there is somebody who talks about uh, all the people dying in uh, Milano are linked to the very bad uh, uh, pollution that we have here in the, this city. And I don't know if it's right or wrong, but it makes sense anyway. So uh, I think that people in very soon have, have to move to the bicycle to move in the, from one place to another in the big cities. So, I mean, uh, the bicycle will be in, in the center of our lives. And definitely there will be a kind of attraction between cycling, riding a bicycle and watching the top riders in the top races. And so I believe that uh, uh, pro cycling should uh, ride the greater movement and say, yes, please, people, move to the bicycle and uh, uh, try to enjoy what you are doing on your bicycle. And this kind of uh, relationship, I believe it's not strong enough right now. And so you see there is an opportunity not only for cycling to, to play a bigger role within the community there, but also to expand its presence in the global sporting world um, by by taking steps to be more ecologically sustainable and more climate conscious. Yeah, I think that uh, all the big cities should find a place for bicycle riders. We, we have to learn from uh, uh, those who already are able to do that in, in the north of Europe. And uh, yeah, I think, of course, you need to change. But uh, I think that uh, the young guys are ready to do that. And uh, we should follow this kind of movement that uh, I really like a lot because uh, it's, uh, it looks uh, real, real. And uh, I think uh, it's, uh, it's a big opportunity for, for cycling and, uh, because you need to, to tell people that uh, the bicycle is definitely better and you feel better, you breathe better and uh, you are healthier and uh, it's... Uh, it's a very good opportunity and if the bicycle is becoming more important in every single day i'm sure that you enjoy much more watching the uh, the races uh, during the weekend well michele 
you have been fantastic and very generous with your time. But before before we leave you, I know you're a cycling fan, regardless of where you are, because once you're involved in the world of cycling, that's your passion and you never seem to let it go, regardless of, of where you are in your life. So which teams do you follow now? Um, who are some of your favorite riders? And if the Giro does go on in late October, do you think that's that's a possibility of of actually happening? Yeah, I think it's an opportunity because uh, I'm sure that uh, my old friends from the Giro are, are still trying to save the race this year. And so they are trying to, to do that. I'm quite impressed when I see the road that started from Budapest going to Italy. And unfortunately, I think that that kind of race will not be possible. And I know that it's bad because when you work so much, you close deals and you make everything working and then you have to change things. But there is no other solution. And so I believe that they have to change a little bit their plans, but I hope that they can run it. So I hope to can enjoy the Giro in October, of course. And uh, on the other side, the what teams and uh, I never had a favorite teams or a favorite riders because um, when you are the Giro director, you need to be a friend of everybody and uh, you are happy when you see somebody winning and uh, if uh, they are, you know how many sacrifices they, all of them, all these guys are doing. So you really support all of them. But if uh, I have to say that I still have uh, a rider in my heart, I have it. And I think it's Mark Cavendish because it's uh, a very great man. And uh, I still support him a lot. And uh, I hope uh, he can close his career very good. And uh, I hope uh, he has the chance to do it this year. <laughs> because every year, you know, you are one year older. And so I, I hope uh, he can close with uh, a, a very good win. That question um, has got me got me thinking, Michele, about you know being a fan of the sport, and um, and and to your point about about you know Mark Cavendish having a win. I've got this fantasy, and I'm sure I know Bobby shares this as well. Like, is there the opportunity this year, or what would you think about, say, for example, running like one Super Grand Tour, um, and you know combining all three and having a uh, a grand, well, what would you call it, the Tour? De France, La Vuelta, d'Italia. Is that at all possible, or what? You know, what, what are your th- what are your thoughts on that theoretical thing? I think that uh, like that, uh, like uh, you know, in in uh, in the AZ's uh, calendar is not possible. Uh, but uh, I think that uh, you need to change something to make it possible because that's what uh, every single fan is waiting for. If I got the right question, eh? if I if I, if I no, you, right. you, no, I I feel like that's exactly it. A lot of people you ask are like, why don't we just combine all three grand tours? And and I know politically and and, logis- and uh, you know economically, like that becomes a bit of a nightmare. But we can dream. We can dream. But no, what, what do you mean when you say combining the grand tours? Well, sorry, sorry. What do I mean? I mean in the sense of like this year, right? We're running you know, a very, an increasingly shrinking time frame for uh, the races to be played out in, right? And, you know, the smaller that time frame gets, the more impact 
whatever racing goes on in in 2020 will have on on the 2021 season. And so in the interests of trying to maximize that time and also the exposure from the sport, right, as you said before, it's really important that the Tour de France runs because it's the biggest globally. And so if we can get that up and running, we'll, we'll maintain that audience and the teams will get a return on their investment. Is there a way to, to leverage off of that fan engagement and global spectacle and then add a bit of the Giro d'Italia and add a bit of the Vuelta to that mix? So imagine that week one is France, week two is Italy, and then they fly over and the third week is in Spain and it's kind of this global... Yeah, that's sort of what I meant by that is... is... <laughs> It could be great. I love that. I definitely love that. Why not? When they say something, doing something new, completely new, let's do that. This is uh, the right year to do strange things. And uh, uh, if I could, uh, you know, feel, uh, if I could be in, uh, still in my position, I would work to do that. Of course, just talking with uh, <laughs> my French friends and say, okay, let's do it. Just one year, very special, forever, the big tour, the tour of the tours. Great. And it would be such a great gesture from everyone's part that through this crisis, we're going to come together and we're going to share the, the piece of the pie. And, you know, like you said, to have, you know, to start in Italy and, you know, go over to France and down to Spain. I mean, I know there's a lot of logistics stuff there. But what a what a amazing idea that is. And in this day and age, you know, we human beings do come together. And um, I think it's I think it needs to get put on the table. I believe that uh, maybe it's not just a, a problem in the operation because you, you can find a solution. You have rest days and you, you, you can manage it somehow. I think it's more complicated on, uh, you know, in, in, the, in the, the money things. And so, I mean, mm. uh, the, the, the TV rights, the media rights, uh, and the sponsorship rights. But uh, I say, why not? Just try to do that. And uh, you can talk with the broadcasters and find a solution. Maybe you can have different sponsors uh, in the first week, in the second one, and the third one. And of course, you can have the you know the finish in France in uh, in Paris, but uh, it's great. And uh, I hope that uh, your idea will be on the good tables in the next days. Absolutely, Michele. Um It's been an absolute pleasure talking to uh, a kindred spirit. I think who shares. Oh, well, I feel like I share a very similar uh, point of view to the sport of cycling. Really interesting conversation. Let's, uh, you know, let's let's put it out there. A global grand tour for 2020. That should be the solution to our reduced season. Hashtag global tour 2020. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's impossible, but very, very beautiful. And uh, we have exactly. uh, to dream about that every night. <laughs> <laughs> we can dream, mate. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. So, Bobby, coming out of our conversation with Michele and also to uh, the week that has seen the UCI after a lot of kind of public 
conjecture and conversation and you know people sort of tweeting out their thoughts on what the new calendar should look like the UCI has put theirs out and to me to be honest it kind of looks like well it kind of looks like they just thought we'll just condense the entire season into three months it's like we'll just please everybody and in my feeling as a result they're not pleasing anyone it feels like they haven't really given too much thought to what the structure and the strain that this will put on teams and organizers will look like but not only that but also it's kind of left um, by the wayside the minority stakeholders in the sport I wanted to hear your thoughts on the calendar and also the rhetoric about going forward that seems to be kind of the current UCI speak piece I have to admit that it does feel a little strange talking about professional cycling and the changes that we need to make at a time like this where there's so much darn uncertainty. Of course, this topic has been mentioned for years, and I'm not trying to sound like I have all the answers at all, because there are people that have surely put more time and effort than me into this. I would love to say that cycling is in a great place and everything is just going to be fine. Let's throw all these races in there and condense the season, and and that's the answer. But I think that would be like an ostrich sticking its head in the sand. Uh, The overall goal is not to point fingers or disrespect the sport or the people that are pulling the strings at the moment, but to, to open this up to discussion. And I think that was maybe overlooked, to say the least, in this last week. We can talk about this all we want from our comfortable, cozy armchair quarterback position. But hopefully we'll soon see, other than talking about all these issues, some real action with these issues. Setting the possible race start date for the tour was a good step, and it does give people hope. But that was only one race. And if there is one race that we save this year, I think it does need to be the Tour de France because that is such an iconic part of the sport. You know, the NFL would never cancel the the Super Bowl unless, you know, something really drastic happened, right? But yeah, that being said, this condensing of the race season should not be at all costs. And one thing that is really clear and somewhat troubling is we can't forget about the women the under-23 races, and and junior racing. Just throwing out a couple grand tours back-to-back-to-back, I don't know if that is the answer. But there is no easy answer to any of this. Hopefully our sport can take the time to recalibrate during this special period in our lives and look at the bigger picture moving forward. I think we have an opportunity here, and the urgency of now is yesterday in terms of getting this ball rolling. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And to your point about, you know, women's cycling under 23, I definitely feel, and look, I don't envy the position of the UCI or the ASO and that, but I definitely feel that there needs to have been more consideration there. Tour de France has to run, no doubt. Like, why not run Tour of Flanders or Paris-Roubaix, you know, Tour of Lombardia, a couple of shortened Grand Tours, but I mean, yeah, like like we said, I, I also I also to be if I'm if I'm brutally honest, I'm also not a hundred percent convinced that the UCI announcing a, a calendar was a responsible thing to do. You know, going back to our conversation with uh, Brendan Schwab from the World Players Association, he was talking about the role of sport in this in the current pandemic. It has a huge responsibility. You know, he was talking about the Olympic Games and the fact that they were still continuing to 
be adamant that they were going to run, the the social impact that has and and the and the the, the sentiment that that was putting out into society was potentially damaging, and that was enough of a reason for the for the Olympic Games to postpone, irrespective of if they could uh, still have run. And so I'm a little bit in that court at the moment with the way that the UCI is speaking. You know, I was on the phone yesterday with with Mitch Docker, who's over in Spain. He hasn't left his house for 36 days. He's been training on the trainer. He's talking about a totally different situation in Europe right now than we're experiencing here in the US. Talking to people back in Australia, it's the same thing there. So I feel like right now, it's very difficult to have this conversation in a meaningful way. And I am worried that by having this conversation, what is that doing to the athletes, right? We're talking about bringing back racing in August, uh, bringing back racing, yeah, at the end of August, right? Are guys now who are here in the US who are on stay-at-home orders, people in Europe, you know, are they tempted to sneak out and train? Are they going to start pushing the limits? And does that, what does that do, right? Like, what does that do to society? What message does that send? We already saw uh, a couple of days ago, Rohan Dennis under the, under whatever duress that he was under, like from being cooped up in home, kind of went out and very publicly announced that he was breaking the uh, stay-at-home order. That he said, you know, um, yeah, a bunch of things on online that were that were very uh, detrimental to. Well, it was it was an abuse of his power. I feel in the sense that uh, it was an irresponsible use of his power. Sorry, not an abuse. In that he put out the wrong message, right? So if we're having the sport telling its athletes. And, and the world that it's coming back and there's riders with their contracts up for grabs and they're thinking, well, shit, I'm about to lose my job. I've got three months to, to do it. I'm going to sneak out and break the stay-at-home order. I'm going to go and, you know, potentially flirt with what is not just their own danger, but this is like a very real, very global, very protracted issue that we don't really understand. So from that perspective, you know, I enjoy the conversation about talking about what the sport should be do and what this calendar should look like but if i'm brutally honest with myself and with this current situation is i do think that the uci is being mildly irresponsible here in in publicly talking about this stuff and i understand the economic impact and all of that sort of stuff but you know human life trumps the economic situation and so i feel that there is a responsibility there from the uci there you go that's my piece <laughs> Yes, Gus, I, I agree. There's a, uh, a lot of stuff to do, but unfortunately, that's all the time we have for this week, and I hope you enjoy this episode. You can also get the show as well as a ton of other fantastic cycling journalism over at velonews.com. Don't forget, you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or whatever your favorite go-to podcast site may be. Just search Put your socks on or fizzo. Please continue to show your support by subscribing. Tell your friends about us here at Put Your Socks On. Uh, you can get at us on social media, Fizzopod on Twitter, P-Y-S-O-P-O-D, uh, at that is Gus and at Bobby Julik on Instagram. So, yeah, make sure you reach out to us there. Uh, any suggestions, any feedback, we'd love to hear from you guys. This episode was produced by Steve Maxwell of The Outer Line. It was edited by our very favorite editor and all-time all-star, Eddie Rogers. Uh, and I guess we have to extend as well a very special thanks to Michele Accoroni and Tim Cusick for contributing to the show and making it what it is. 
Bobby, until next week, thank you so much. And to our listeners, thank you all for listening. Thank you, Gus. Thanks, everyone out there listening. And don't forget to put your socks on.